Okay, welcome to Are You a Robot? It is a pleasure to have you here with us again. Before we jump into the full conversation, let's hear a quick intro and then a little update from myself. Hi, I'm Dorothea Bauer. I'm an independent consultant, lecturer, and speaker with a focus on ethics, most specifically in tech and finance, and I am based in Switzerland. So if you're new to Are You a Robot? This is a series where we aim to tackle and dissect the greatest questions and challenges that arise from AI and other related technologies. I am Demetrios Brinkman, your host. And the way that we're going about doing this is by having the best and brightest minds in their respective fields. The cream of the crop, come on here, talk with me about what they're seeing, how they see the world. If there's any best practices that they can offer to us mere mortals. And we have discussions about it. So I will mention that the discussions do not finish here. We have a Slack community and I would encourage you, if you do not have Slack fatigue yet from one year in a pandemic, jump into our Slack and introduce yourself. Let us know what you are working on because... It is a great place to foster these conversations and be very transparent about what's going on in the industry. Last but not least, I will mention our sponsor, Ethics Grade. For anyone that has been listening for a while, you know they've been with us from the beginning and they're an ESG ratings company, which means they measure the non-financial impact that a company has on its environment. And recently, they just released their first cohort of data. So they now have rated over 100 companies on their AI ethics program. You can go through there and see which companies compare to one another or what companies, how companies compare to one another. That means that you can go and check out Alibaba and compare it against Amazon, or you can compare Tesla against Toyota. You can compare Twitter against whoever you want. <laughs> and I really implore you, go check out their website, ethicsgrade.io, or click the link below and have a play with it. It's really interesting stuff. The analysts over at Ethics Grade have been working hard on this and they've done a great job. So check it out. Let us know what you think in the comments below. And as always, we would appreciate it if you leave a review in whatever podcast app you listen to us on, if it is possible. And without further ado, let's talk with the guest of honor, Dorothea. Are you a robot? Perfect. Thank you for coming on the show, Dorothea. This is set to be an amazing chat and especially timely as we all know Clubhouse is the new rage and we're going to dip into a little bit of that. But before we jump into all of that, I think it would be helpful for all of the people listening to know about yourself and your background. How did you get into tech? And more recently, how did you start to get into the ethics side of things? Well, it's actually the other way around. I have been in the ethics side of things for like almost two decades, but I started out with business ethics 
And then I also went into environmental ethics, etc. But like a classical, you know, business ethics background with a PhD in business ethics and tech bit has only been added recently. And I have to borrow this statement from someone else who said about herself, she invited herself to the party. And that also applies to me because when I joined Twitter three years ago, I suddenly, I don't know how it happened, but I, I got into this whole AI ethics debate and I found it so fascinated and I couldn't let it go ever since. And that's how I really came to be acknowledged as, you know, someone also competent in that field. Yeah, so you had the foundation. Yes, exactly. In business ethics, strongly in corporate social responsibility. And that's also one of my main things, I think. AI ethics has some specific challenges that are distinctive because of the technology, but a lot of AI ethics uh, can also benefit from debates that have been led in, you know, business ethics already. How so? Yeah, for example, you know, the whole thing about um, uh, discrimination, etc. Of course, part of it is, you know, what happens on a technical level with complex algorithms, etc. But other things that can be done to mitigate that is simply like a really good, credible, effective stakeholder management. It's not new, you know. So these are just discussions I'm trying to link to fields like business ethics and AI ethics uh, whenever possible. That makes complete sense. Taking Thanks. what's already been iterated on and exactly. just shifting because like you say, it's not like it's so foreign. There are a few distinct pieces, mm -hmm. but we can build from or stand on the shoulders of giants by using what's been created already. And there's no use in reinventing the wheel. Though, I mean, to be honest, you could claim what well, learn from business ethics. Has business been really convincing with their ethics in recent decades? Of course, there's a lot of criticism, but, you know, it depends on, you know, what you look like in the academic debate or conceptual debates. You can, you know, borrow a lot from there. And then best practices, of course, are always you know, uh, hard to find, but they are there. And so I just think there is some mutual benefit for both fields. That's a great point that you bring that up too. Uh, so that the people listening, that was probably going through their head and you answered it already. <laughs> I anticipate this type of criticism. I've been in the field for long enough, believe me. <laughs> well, let's jump into Clubhouse because I know it is a huge topic of debate right now and mm. there are those many people that are using it and uh full disclaimer i have clubhouse i have been on it i have used it but i am also really interested in hearing all of the different viewpoints from it because i think it is one of those apps that has a little bit of a dark side and so we need mm -hmm. to look at it now before it's 10 years later and we have a Facebook situation. And I think it would probably be helpful to just start with a bit of an idea of what Clubhouse is for everybody out there. In, if For those like two people who haven't heard about it yet, <laughs> they, they, what Clubhouse is, is you go on, it is audio only, you have your profile picture, but you don't have any video and you can go into different rooms and there are people on a stage and they're speaking 
and then there are people in the audience and you can be invited onto a stage. And I think it got a lot of momentum because a lot of famous people are using Clubhouse and it's very easy for you to all of a sudden just interact with a famous person, whether that be a famous VC who is talking about what companies to invest in and you can pitch them your idea on a company or it's a celebrity who or a comedian who are making jokes and you can go in there and um, heckle the comedian in a way. And so that's the background on it. But one thing that becomes very apparent in the beginning once you download Clubhouse is that they work on this gamification. And you wrote a brilliant article on this about the gamification of how if I want to get on Clubhouse, I need, A, I need an invite. And to get an invite, I need to have someone who already has the app send it Mm -hmm. to me. And then the other thing is that, uh, oh yeah, just like a side note, it's only for iPhone users at this moment in time when we're recording, which is like mid-March. So, and they say that's going to change soon, but they've been saying that for a while. And so the gamification part is the really interesting part. And I think we can dive into that a little bit because you have some thoughts on it. Yeah, well, to be honest, and uh, in order to uh, uh, uphold my credibility, of course, I can only judge it from the outside because I'm not on Clubhouse. You know? <laughs> I mean, I have been tempted to join, but I'm glad that it is not as uh, popular yet uh, so that I have to join because otherwise I would lose business massively. So I can still afford to stay away. So uh, I don't know the user interface details, etc. But I, I just, I was appalled by the model, as you said, that requires you basically to uh, share your address book with Clubhouse if you want to join, even though there are options to opt out from that. And then you're being punished by only getting two invites that you can send out, apparently. So basically, whatever their logic is, it's uh, heavily growth-based and they're building a social graph and they have to build up a new platform. And uh, and that's the, the one thing is whether you are willing to reveal details about yourself in order to get access. But the other thing is they basically force you or they, they, they try to lure you into sharing details of your contacts. And then you infringe on the privacy of the contacts in your address book. And this can have really bad consequences. There's this famous case from Facebook, uh, which sometimes comes up with really weird suggestions for people you might know, really spooky sometimes. Uh, How can they know that I actually know this person, but I don't want to be friends with them on Facebook? So apparently a few years ago, people were suggested uh, to each other who shared the same psychiatrist. I know, and this is what happens when you give an app or a platform access to address books. It can then build a social graph across different address books and it sees a pattern like, oh, these people appear in all the address books, but the app does not have any social context or no sense of discretion. And it will, you know, uh, you know, reveal uh, <laughs> um, lovers, lawyers, 
psychiatrists, you know, whatever else you might want to keep private. You might want to keep it private, actually, if you had thought about it. And they certainly want, don't want to be involved in your, you know, social graph uh, creation. So that's a real problem that they don't, they don't, they don't even, you don't even just share things about yourself. You share things about your grandmother who doesn't even have a cell phone, whatever she probably cares least, but uh, it's quite far reaching. So they're kind of forcing you into what I call complicity, which is a bit of a harsh word, I know, but uh, I borrowed this from a debate on business and human rights. So I think it's legitimate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting. I saw an article about it, how, like you said, uh, Clubhouse users were sent it was giving information about their psychiatrists and their drug dealers well maybe you share the same drug dealer with your psychiatrist you never yeah. know there's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> all kinds of jokes that i can make there but we'll try and stay professional we are <laughs> yeah exactly so the the thing that's interesting here is that it feels like the whole GDRP thing or GDPR went out the window with this one. There's not really, but I don't know if if they're explicitly breaking any laws within that or not. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but from what I read is they really might be breaching the GDPR. But then the thing is, I think they just calculate the costs that could arise from a fine for breaking the GDPR uh, into their business model. And that's what makes it so brazen. That's what makes it so audacious. I mean, you just think like, okay, I can afford to go over the speed limit because I have enough money to pay the fine. And so that's really what, what, what shocks me most, that they might be doing it on purpose because apparently there are so many hurdles for you to secure your privacy, including, you know, hurdles for canceling your account where you have to send an email to someone, you know, can you imagine, hey, please cancel my account, etc. They make it so difficult for you to get out of it again. Uh, they, they really, they, they don't seem to be willing to make any effort towards uh, privacy preservation. And I really think that for them, the costs that could arise from bre- breaching the GDPR are just part of their business model. That's interesting to think about. I remember mm-hmm. in my hometown there was a hotel that was being put in and they had to abide by, it was in a forest area and they couldn't cut down any trees or else they got fined and they cut down all the trees and they just paid the fine and said whatever. So they could build this big hotel and it seems a little bit like that. That's the mentality. Hey, we don't care. Yeah. And the worst is these are like irreversible not crimes, but irreversible things. Once all the data is out there, you cannot take it back. Once the trees are cut, you cannot grow them back unless it takes it, well, it takes it 20 years, yeah. whatever. So, uh, you know, there are no consequences. They're not going, lo- going to lose that data. They can't give it back. They're not going to, to take where, uh, the data on a USB stick when they come and search for, for uh, illegally obtained data. It's not possible. Yeah, and so the other thing that I find interesting about Clubhouse is that everything is by voice and anyone can start a room and Mm -hmm. say anything that they want and Mm -hmm. there's no moderation, which Mm -hmm. is 
a bit of an ethical debate in itself. Should mm. we be able to say anything we want and get together and do that? There's a lot of people that think, yeah, but then you have, I, I've read about, and I think they got it under control, but I read about a lot of problems on Clubhouse with white supremacist groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you start to think about, wow, the bad ways that this can manifest mm -hmm. itself again mm -hmm. is a bit scary. Yeah, it is. Apparently they record all the chats so they can, in hindsight, monitor them for like really um, grave violations. But for example, there's a really terrible Swiss right-wing politician who seems to have used the N-word three times in a clubhouse chat. And, you know, what does it help if they, in hindsight, monitor it and say like, oh, by the way, this live chat uh, wasn't correct. It didn't accord to our standards. It was racist, etc." Well, I mean, you can't undo it. It has been said in that moment. Then, of course, you can also say whatever is being said live in public, you know, cannot be reversed. But still, it's like this hypocrisy. I mean, what, what, what do they, why do they claim to have control over it? They don't have control over it. Moreover, even if they do have some, uh, one day they have some speech recognition that will filter out racist words, you know, have like a, a three second delay or whatever, it certainly won't apply to Swiss German, which was a terrible dialect. So, I mean, how long until AI will be able to understand all languages? It might work with English. So I really think it is a problem, but then again, you can always say, it's nothing new. It's, you know, we, we can't control all the conversations we are having. It's more like the immediacy uh, of the scale and impact you have with your conversations. Anyone can join, anyone can speak, and then anyone can hear it. Basically, it's, it used to be much more controlled uh, when it happened, you know, on the street, etc. only. So, so that's the difference. Yeah, it's, yeah. in a way, it's almost like we're these bad parts of humanity are getting a platform. Yes. And the good parts, yes. hopefully, also. Uh, yes. So, but you, you get such a, like you were talking about, if you can train an algorithm on the speech recognition or you can do that, which is another thing that it, it is a bit worrisome for me because... If they're already doing all of this gamification and trying to not be so honest with our data and who we know and the contacts books, then later everything that we're saying on the platform and they have our voice at, for hours on end, yeah. what they can do with that and how that can be misused is a little bit uh, unnerving. Yeah, and, it is. But I see your point. Again, it comes down to this. That's not that new. If you really wanted to create a deep fake with my voice, you could go to YouTube also, or you could listen to this podcast. Mm -hmm. So there is something to be said about, well, we can't blame Clubhouse for all of this. I, I think there is a little bit of uh, jumping on the bandwagon and saying, hey, Clubhouse is horrible. And then you have the people that really like it and they say it's the most amazing. What I find interesting, and someone brought this up to me, was they said, how can we talk about, like you see there's different Clubhouse groups and the hypocrisy of these Clubhouse groups is incredible because you have a, you have a session 
or I don't know what they're called exactly. I can't remember, but you have one of these rooms that you go into and the topic of conversation is inclusion. <laughs> and it's on Clubhouse, which mm. A, you need an iPhone mm. for. Mm. <laughs> and so what? how can we call this an inclusive conversation? Right? Yeah. Well, it's just uh, kind of uh, surprising that in the year 2021, uh, someone launches an app that only operates on one system and which happens to be those belonging to cell phones that are much more expensive than all the other ones. So it all it's not just a, a technological kind of divide, like are you an, an iPhone user or an Android user? It's also kind of a class divide. Uh, when you look at the market shares, I think in the US, iPhone has a much higher market share than in, in, in Europe. But I know that uh, like, in Switzerland, it's much lower. And and so when you, in terms of purchasing power, you have much higher purchasing power among iPhone users than among Android users. So it also creates a vertical divide somehow. So yes, but uh, then again, you also need to say, I mean, you can't have total inclusion for everyone. It's if you, if you make like inclusion for anyone with a cell phone, a key requirement, you basically frame it as a, as a right to access. And then if you frame it as a right, you get into really like political discussions. Do I have a right? Is this like a, a basic need that needs to be fulfilled? Is it really a right to X and Y? It's, a, it's really difficult to, to kind of um, prescribe companies to kind of uh, make everything possible to give everyone access if it's not in their business model. Of course, it's a good thing if they do want to do it. But, and they often also sell it as democratization, one of my other pet peeves in the debate. <laughs> but I mean, you cannot really tell companies what, you know, uh, access uh, to provide and tell them that they have to release it on different platforms or on different operating systems at the same time. There are also that kind of freedom of choice among companies. But of course, it's then our choice as users to say like, oh, I don't agree with that business model for privacy reasons, for inclusion reasons, etc. I stay away out of solidarity with all the Android users that have been excluded. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And as someone put when I was talking to them about this, and you make this point completely is, well, it also, I mean, if we're talking about Clubhouse specifically, it also is excluding people with phones in general and people with internet connections and people with who prefer to use uh, this operating system or just that operating system so it is a much bigger thing than that and Mm -hmm. I think actually, if I may, you you give it too much importance if you say like everyone must have access to Clubhouse. You kind of imply that you're totally missing out on a lot if you don't have access. Whereas if you say, you know, if there is a shop nearby, you don't have access to that shop because you're living far away. It's not that important. You can't have access to everything at all times. But so by kind of framing it as something where you should have access to, uh, you, you kind of, I think you artificially uh, make it bigger than it is. Mm. It would be great if we could stay cool about it. Okay, we don't really agree with the decision to only provide it on iPhones, but actually you're not, you're not missing out on much. Yeah. <laughs> That's a very good point. Like, and that may be one of the marketing ploys for Clubhouse. For, yeah, fear of missing out. Yeah. yeah. 
and you have people that are uh, are angry at Clubhouse because they don't offer it on uh, on Android, and so it creates more buzz. About it does. It. And then look at we're just part of the the sheep <laughs> that are talking about it also. Uh, so let's let's talk about something else for a moment because I know that you just wrote another great blog article <laughs> about Robin Hood and as you just mentioned the democratization yes. of uh, investing and so you have some qualms with what Robin Hood I'd love to hear them well actually you know thinking about it maybe I should thank Clubhouse for not even pretending to be democratizing anything, but to be quite honest about being exclusionary, because that's what leads us to Robin Hood, who says like, making financial markets markets accessible to everyone, uh, we are democratizing financial markets, which is a relevant point if you look at how many people are excluded from investing because investments are often only accessible for people with a certain amount of money uh, and they often have a lot of intermediaries and intransparent fees, etc. So retail investors are often kind of locked out from the stock market and the stock market is one of the biggest wealth creators. So access to financial markets as investors is an important part of financial inclusion. And it has been acknowledged also by, you know, really serious organizations like uh, the UN, etc. But then uh, Robin Hood says, well, we are making it accessible for you. And, and we are so great, we don't charge you any fees. Yeah. And you think, wow, that's great. So that's the first thing. But then, as always, you need to ask yourself when there are no fees involved, uh, you know, what I'm actually paying with, if I'm not paying with my credit card or my wallet, I mean, what is it that they take from me? And the answer is always data. So that's one thing that makes me uh, really angry that Robinhood makes their revenues by selling transaction data, user transaction data to hedge funds. So which hedge funds are quite the opposite of anything you'd, want to relate to democracy. And uh, the other thing is that in order to to attract you as an investor, they really gamify. You talked about gamification with uh, Clubhouse. I can't really judge that because I'm not on Clubhouse, but what I read about Robin Hood is really like those classical gamification elements like rewards with confetti being, you know, sprayed on your display when you make a trade, etc. So they do everything to keep you on their platform. And that's not democracy because they're notching you and they're like often benefiting from the fact that a lot of micro investors are not financially literate and they don't see that you know doing as many trades as possible won't necessarily make them richer but will certainly make robin hood richer because robin hood earns money with every transaction users make because they sell the data about these transactions to hedge funds mm. so yeah i have a lot of uh, issues with that model obviously yeah, and I think it's interesting for me to look at real fast uh, the idea of selling data to financial institutions. It's not new and there are a lot of companies that are doing it where they're selling data of other companies. Mm -hmm. And so there's, for me, it seems like there's a big divide of selling data of a company to a financial institution and mm -hmm. selling data of a person. Mm -hmm. Is that, am I correct in assuming that or are both 
a bit taboo? Well, I don't know. I'm not really familiar with the data trading with company data, but I mean, I think the problem is if you if you sell data about people, people are more vulnerable than a company. <laughs> so even on a, you know from an ethical point of view, of course you can blackmail a company. We see that with all those cyber attacks, etc. But uh, for us, it kind of far reaching consequences when then our data is being traded around the globe and then slowly creeps into algorithms that make decisions on all aspects of our lives. I read this report about the US about the interlocking web of algorithms where similar algorithms are used in social services, in credit uh, agencies, in, you know, uh, uh, tenant questions, like housing questions, etc. And so the problem is if your data or like, yeah, whatever is being revealed about you and all the um, information uh, enters all these algorithms, at the same time, you're being uh, treated by these algorithms in different aspects of your life in the same way. And if you're unlucky, you happen to be discriminated by them. So that's a problem with personal data. If it replicates itself and it then, you know, goes into all these different systems that are used to make decisions about, you know, your life, you're simultaneously affected for better or worse by the same type of, uh, you know, uh, decision-making, uh, uh, automatic decision-making. That's fascinating to think about how this data, a lot of times we can think the data is taken by one party and they can do the most with this data that they got from us. But when you look at the data brokers and you realize, wow, data from over here is being used to train this algorithm. And then that algorithm also, it might have some some ties with another algorithm. And yeah. really when like what you just spoke about, these are what I like to call a bit more high risk Mm -hmm. use cases mm -hmm. when you're scoring someone with an algorithm on whether or not they should get a loan mm -hmm. that is potentially life-changing for mm -hmm. people and so it's very dangerous if you don't know you as a person as the the customer who's trying to get this loan you don't know a that an algorithm is deciding that you're going to get the loan and b where the data came to train that algorithm mm -hmm. Because if it's from all of these other sources that you thought would never be connected mm -hmm. to that, mm -hmm. then you are mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really bad because also in the US, I read, you know, for example, in the, in the justice system, sometimes they have, well, not in justice system, but also with a, applying for a mortgage, you know, they have mistakes in their databases and the namesake of yours, another, well, probably Demetrius Brinkman is a pretty safe name to have or Dorothea Bauer, but you're called John Smith or whatever. Yeah. You could be easily co confused with someone else with the same name. And then their track record, which might be very bad, enters your data. Yeah. And then once this is inter interwoven, you don't get to disentangle it. I mean, until you find, you know, uh, until you find someone who can tell you, oh, this is what happened. We are going to correct the mistake. How can you do that when this misinformation has already creeped into all different automating, uh, automated decision-making systems that are used to judge you for whatever on, you know, housing, uh, job applications, uh, driving licenses, etc. Exactly. It's like when you get gum in your hair. Yes. You just... <laughs> 
it's really hard to get out <laughs> after is, that. It is. <laughs> uh, it's not an easy fix, is it? You yeah. are so entangled yes. because this data, how do they know which one is yours and which one is the others? And of course, you're going to say, well, all of the good ones are mine yeah. and all the bad ones are the others. But yeah. how do you even go about that, especially if you're yeah. looking at years and years? It's very scary to think about. Uh, and <laughs> Yeah, and until you find out, you might just notice, oh, wow, I seem to be having bad luck. I got rejected for that mortgage. I got, I, I didn't get an invitation to that job interview. Uh, I don't know, I get bad matches on a dating platform, whatever. And then suddenly you realize it's all interlocked. Imagine, yeah. it feels like a spell. Like, yeah. oh, destiny hates me. Well, it's not destiny. It's just algorithmic <laughs> interlocking. <laughs> and you're just having a bad streak <laughs> in terms of algorithmic decision-making. Yeah, wow. And then you realize it and then then you try to you know to counter it and you don't as you said it's like gum in your hair you just don't get it out you need to you'd have to shave your hair and i don't know what the equivalent would be in terms of you know shave off the algorithm yeah or freeze the data or freeze something. it yeah exactly say that all of the data that's used before this point when it got muddied is no longer valid yeah data amnesty yeah well it's exactly. like a right to be forgotten you know we have the i mean there's that thing, but I don't know the details. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The right to be forgotten. And then you get re... <laughs> uh, I don't know how you would say Reconfigurated that, yeah, exactly. <laughs> data so points. Like forget yeah. everything and then yes. you get brought back together. Yeah, but you know, for example, in the US, if you don't have a credit history, you don't get a high credit score. And then, I mean, you're not a valuable consumer or a consumer if you can't show that you have been spending a lot of money on your credit card and always paying the bills etc so it's to your uh, disadvantage if you don't have a history to show yeah. so a clean slate is not always the best thing <laughs> also yeah these are very valid points and so people that are users of Robinhood or clubhouse or any of these other gigantic companies that or social networks and we've heard most of us have heard about the bad things that are going mm -hmm. on that we tend to turn a blind eye to do you feel like it's just the service is too powerful so we're going to go with it no matter what they're doing mm -hmm. in the background well actually i have had a bit of a change of mindset in that regard recently because i always thought like oh we are all like empowered critical citizens and you know some kantian inspiration here like free will etc yeah. but now that i read about robin hood i really uh, was confronted with the fact that there are neurochemical structures in your in in our brains that just make it so difficult to resist so the whole gamification really triggers dopamine responses in your brain so when we are confronted with certain interfaces it's just almost impossible to resist because it really, you know, it makes us addicted. So the information I found about Robin Hood is on a website called like Center for Addiction, whatever. And Robin Hood is presented as an addictive game. <laughs> so, and they write about these neurochemical, you know, uh, connections, etc. So it is a lot to ask from individual users to, you know, resist all the 
neurochemical urges that we have. Oh, we feel so rewarded. It feels so good to be on Robin Hood. Oh, look at that uh, cute little teddy bear that appears whenever I make a new trade or whatever. It's really, it's a lot to ask, especially in a clubhouse context when your friends are on that as well, but maybe also in a Robin Hood context. I can imagine there is some peer pressure. Hey, you know, I'm, I made money on Robin Hood. What are you using your Corona stimulus check for? Uh, as they say in Bitcoin, whenever I uh, criticize Bitcoin, they say, oh, well, stay poor being stupid. You know, I could imagine the same type of uh, peer pressure among Robin Hood users. You're missing out on something and not just in Robin Hood's case, not just missing out on a on a fun chat on Clubhouse, you're missing out on money, on real money. Yeah. I tripled my stimulus check. What did you with, do with yours? Oh, you went to McDonald's. You're stupid. Yeah. yeah. It's so pretty. it's a lot to ask. It's a lot to ask from individual users. Yeah, I can see that completely, mm. and especially when you have people that are toting the success stories. Yes. Uh, but yes. as we as we know, it's not all success no and especially if you're a novice going into the market it's a lot harder to triple the stimulus check than to lose it i think <laughs> yes. you have a lot more chances of losing it and so one thing that i liked in your article you talked about ai for nonsense i think is what <laughs> you the term you use can you go into that a little bit <laughs> just it's it's a bit I, I was told it's a bit disrespectful, but hey, you know, I don't respect AI as a sentient being with a dignity that uh, has an intrinsic value. AI is a technology. And if I say AI for nonsense, I'm not uh, insulting anyone here. Maybe the ones who create it, but I mean, in that context, the AI cannot feel that I'm, you know, insulting it. So um, I just, you know... Uh, use this as like a paraphrasing of AI for good, etc. Because we say like there is so much AI for good, and I there is AI for good. I don't doubt that, but we also need to acknowledge there's a lot of AI for nonsense when technology is developed for the sake of technology. So it doesn't really serve a real need. It's just a, a show off thing, uh, and often also exaggerated uh, in terms of what they promise it can do. But so my favorite example, and I've used this before, is like, uh, you know, why would you develop an AI or uh, application that could monitor whether you light a cigarette on the gas station and warn you not to light a cigarette? What do you need? AI for that. I mean, just like the amount of, you know, data that goes into that surveillance, etc. Then the emissions that are emitted for training that algorithm, that's one thing. But the other thing is also, I mean, how stupid do we become? If, if one day we don't know anymore that you should not light a cigarette when you're near a gas station, apart from being told every day that we should not smoke at all, you know, well, I mean, how much responsibility do we delegate to AI? And so that's AI, not just for nonsense, but also AI for the, how do you say, uh, for, for making people more stupid uh, than we would be otherwise. Yeah. And I actually, I keep <laughs> coming back to this quote or this conversation that I had with um Yoav from Salesforce, and oh, yeah. he was talking about the term, I think the term, the exact term that he used was uh, techno-chauvinist. Oh, yeah. And mm. have you heard that one? Yes, Where it's, it. yeah. Every problem can be solved oh, by yeah. technology. Yeah. 
And this is an exact example of that. Exactly. Why do we need that problem to be well, solved? Well, for especially, is it even a problem? Yeah. Is there a problem? I mean, how many accidents do we have every year with people lighting cigarettes at gas stations? Uh, so, A, is it a problem, a real problem? B, does it take AI to resolve that problem? Is it even realistic that AI can do that? And C or D, depending on how you count, what is the price we pay? Price is a loss of knowledge, uh, of like everyday knowledge, eventually. That's like, you know, of course, you can also say the same about using navigation systems. Can you still read a map? I can still, but I mean, it's easier to use navigation system. Uh, and so, but if we if we kind of uh, have uh, AI crowd out our, our own skills in every aspect of life, it becomes a bit dangerous. So that's why, yeah, tech solutionism is like the milder version of tech chauvinism. Tech chauvinism is like, wow. <laughs> uh, but but uh, so tech solutionism is like uh, the whole belief that also, you know, climate change, AI will resolve that. Uh, there's just been a, a, a blog published by Sam Altman from OpenAI. I need to check that, where he kind of makes promises about what AI can do within a few decades and that it will make a universal basic income possible for everyone. And just like, you know, it will uh, create so much value, etc. We won't have to work anymore. And he doesn't even mention that we have some problems that, that seem to be pretty irresolvable at the moment. And that's tech solutionism at its best. Yeah. And that is something that I find very interesting. And that point is huge. We're dreaming about the future in this great future with AI and it solves our problems. And we can't get simple problems solved <laughs> right now. And so the idea there is is pretty strong. And I guess it's more to, it's the marketing campaign around AI and yeah. around what we want the future to look like because now I know that there was a uh, I saw something where people when you ask them to think is the future going to be better or worse than the past and most uh, most of the younger generation think that it's going to be worse and mm -hmm. we're going downhill and I can't remember where I saw that so I might just be quoting misinformation and and fake news, but I'll try and find the, uh, the actual stat and place that I found that. But anyway, the, the point is that we need to focus on things that are here right now that are not going well, mm -hmm. rather than look at these things that potentially AI could do in the future and create all of this utopia for us. And I think about your idea again of okay, we've lost some of our capability like reading a map. Arguably, who cares? It's in the name of convenience, <laughs> right? But at some point, you get to this like, like the, when you're in a gas station and something tells you you can't smoke here, uh, somebody's going to be making these rules, right? And so the rules... That one is a, a one that may be valid. You shouldn't smoke in a gas station. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think we all understand that. And we can accept that. Mm -hmm. But what happens when the rules go a little bit into the gray area? 
and we start to see something that isn't so clear, like when you have fire around gasoline, it's a bad idea. Mm -hmm. when, and I'm trying to think of an, a use case or an example of that, but I feel like there are probably a, a few ways that this could turn dystopian very quickly. Yeah, I think so. But, but also try to think of examples, but maybe if you, you know, then try to apply or create such a rule for dress code, uh, for example, you must not, you know, hide your face. Well, nowadays in terms of, pen in times of the pandemic, it's totally legitimate to hide your face. But uh, like two years ago, it was a uh, kind of considered rather illegitimate because of uh, safety and terrorism, etc. Yeah, so yeah, the other way around, you yeah. must hide your face. Yeah, you now you must. Uh, yeah, don't show too much much skin, please. We feel yeah. offended. <laughs> You're a danger when you show your mouth yeah. <laughs> and your nose. We don't want to see that. <laughs> so so, but I was just thinking that you know, if you if you have such uh, recognition tools to see like whether someone is dressing appropriately, uh, and you, you might justify it with a safety considerations that some people might get more often discriminated because their way of walking around doesn't conform to these standards and then it can very quickly become a discrimination of certain cultural um you know uh, clothing styles or of like a certain class of people etc so it can be very soon it can become a tool of discrimination but i must say i can't really come up with a really good example at the moment yeah. for this specific uh, thing well, and, and yeah. at the end of the day, it's like you're talking about. It is a non-problem that we're trying to use tech to fix, exactly. and this That's more why. specifically AI. Yeah, I also wanted to add, you say, like, are we trying to, you know, uh, we're basically trying to distract from real problems. And so we're uh, always talking about facial recognition and say, like, oh, this is amazing how faces can be recognized. But do we have a real problem? Is there like a lack of facial recognition? Has it hindered us from anything in the past? What does it, you know, what do we gain? And then thinking that we have some real problems where the same technology could be applied and really contribute to an improvement. And that's another of my favorite examples is like the same type of technology that is used for facial recognition could be used for tomato recognition, such as you can use it to identify which tomato has been affected by, by I would say, pests mm -hmm. or like by bugs, etc. So in, in, in agriculture, you could use that recognition technology to identify like unhealthy tomatoes and, you know, uh, sort them out and prevent the pest from spreading to other tomatoes. And you could resolve real problem. You could reduce food waste. You could reduce the use of pesticides because you can then very precisely spray pesticides when you know which tomatoes are infected, etc. And you can uh, make the farmer save money by doing that. So this is like a, I, I don't even dare to say it as an ethicist, but it's a triple win case, you know. <laughs> and instead we're using that technology for recognizing faces where it is always an intrusion into our privacy, where it comes with a lot of potential for discriminations. Tomatoes don't have any right or, or any feelings about privacy and they don't have any potential to be discriminated. So let's scan them instead of our faces. <laughs> that is a huge point. And it reminds me of some of the use cases of facial recognition when you go into stores yeah. and you get identified. And that to me is very 
it's an abuse of that technology. Because like you said, it, again, it comes back to this point of what is the problem that you're trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Are you just using this technology to use it? Mm-hmm. Because it's cool and it's new and hey, we'll figure out if we actually can do anything useful with it later, but let's just implement mm-hmm. it. Or is there a real need? Is there a problem to mm-hmm. be solved? So I really like that point. And now we're kind of coming to the end, but I think before we finish, I would like to hear your take on ethics washing. <laughs> and I know that I've spoken to, uh, I, I remember specifically speaking to Shay Brown about mm-hmm. this idea of, because he, he does algorithm audits. Mm-hmm. And he said, and I asked him straight up, I said, well, what about the companies that just come to you and they're doing it for marketing purposes. Mm. They come to you and they say, hey, yeah, audit our algorithms so that they can tout to the rest of the world that, wow, we have you know these algorithms, they've been audited by a third party and they're at this standard or they have this level of excellence. Uh, he said that luckily he hasn't had that example mm. or that case yet. But I feel like that is something that is very common. And especially when we look into businesses and as we move forward and these businesses are using more and more AI, it's going to become more common to ethics wash your AI program. Yeah, but to be honest, A, you will never have a company approach you and say like, hey, listen, we want to look a bit better on the outside. Uh, so this is our motivation. It's the marketing department uh, contacting you and saying, uh, please help us look good. So no company that is, even if they are on purpose, ethics washing will tell you about their agenda. They will frame it differently. And B, in terms of using audits as a tools for ethics washing, that's difficult. If it's a real third party independent audit, it's the wrong tool for ethics washing. If you want to do ethics washing with your algorithms, you have them assessed by any consultant. I mean, I'm a consultant myself, but of course, you know, you know, with any, with, without any independent certification and no officially acknowledged scheme where, you know, where it's a totally different structure. So I think like if you are in the business of doing third-party audits for algorithms, the chances that you contribute to ethics washing are lower than if you're doing anything else. It's like, you know, if you if you set up an auditing system for algorithms that's comparable to financial audit, no one would say like, oh, financial auditors are helping companies to finance wash or to, you know, to, to, to wash their financial numbers. I mean, of course, there is also criticism about financial auditing and a lot has been learned from the Enron Anderson Consulting, you know, uh, Arthur Anderson uh, scandal, sorry, Arthur Anderson it was. Uh, but uh, but audit, independent audits are, I think, the wrong angle to do ethics washing. It's more like when you say, we are collaborating with this uh, NGO, and then you realize it's like, a, it's just a, a front group or like a, an industry-sponsored group of like a, a few kind of co-opted representatives, then this is ethics washing. Uh-huh. And how else have you seen that play out? How have you, because I, I feel like that is a very common theme 
that we'll see yeah, it's a, a company showing in their marketing that they're helping X amount of people with every whatever that exactly. you buy, yeah. item you purchase, oh, yeah, product, yeah. 10% I mean, goes yeah. to this yeah. NGO. Or well, this is, this is really, that's why I say like AI ethics or like the whole debate about ethics of tech companies can learn also from other business ethics debate. There's like uh, ethics washing by distracting from problems in your core business uh, by saying for every yogurt you buy, 10 cents go to breast cancer awareness. And you think, well, what does that yogurt have to do with breast cancer awareness raising? Uh, maybe they're having another issue with their yogurt production. And then you find out, yeah, they're having a, you know, a bad animal treatment in their farming supply chain, et cetera. And they try to distract. So that's really, that's old style, rather stupid ethics washing. I mean, you can be more smart. <laughs> you can be smarter uh, with ethics washing when you at least try to link what you're doing in terms of ethics for your core business and then still try to, you know, make it look better than it actually is. For example, as I said, you work with an NGO that is not a real representative of critical civil society group, but that's more like a front group, industry sponsored, or as, you know, one of the criticisms also, when you set up an ethics board, like who is on that board, are critical voices included, or is it just people, you know, who, who kind of uh, do it to uh, improve your reputation and who, who will always say yes to everything you do. Mm -hmm. So that's more advanced uh, kind of, ethics washing than the oh yeah let's let's give donations to africa so no one will uh, take a close look what we're actually doing in our core business that's old style uh -huh. <laughs> interesting and do you feel like there are any other ways that companies can avoid being accused of ethics washing like how how can you do it the right way and how can you do it the wrong way well, as I said, the wrong way is when you try to distract from your products and your services. I think anything you do in terms of ethics has to address your core business. I'm not saying that philanthropy is, is uh, illegitimate. It's still nice if corporations also donate money to other causes. But the first thing is like link ethics to, you know, how you earn money. And uh, and that already kind of uh, allows stakeholders to 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 take a look at, you know, what core business looks like. And and then uh, within that, how you can do it is by transparent reporting, by getting external assurance for your, like, as you do with sustainability reporting, there are now clear standards for sustainability reporting that, of course, they still leave room for some, not cheating, but for some, uh, I would say, cosmetic surgery with your <laughs> emissions, etc. But it is evolving and so transparent reporting with external assurance uh, stakeholder dialogues etc and then of course depending on the product you're producing or the services you're providing you also need to have specific measures on a product or service level as i said uh, uh, auditing of algorithms etc is, is uh, very specific than to the tech industry for example and how well I, I think i said how not to do it don't try to distract and yeah just uh yeah, I feel like the, there's yeah. a point in time when a company should shift to focusing on that or should it be started from the beginning? Because it seems like it may be a bit more expensive or resource intensive to start. Well, ideally, ideally it is kind of, as companies like to say, it's in our DNA 
you know, it's uh, ethics is in our DNA, sustainability is in our DNA. Ideally, this is the case, and it's much easier if you integrate it from the start, and if you have some founders with a really, uh, you know, good vision uh, or like uh, strong convictions on those matters that build their business model aligned with ethics. Then, if you, and I think that's partially what happens in the tech industry. You have these tech giants who have not paid any attention to ethical issues, and then suddenly they're overwhelmed by a flood of scandals, and they don't have any awareness and no corporate culture for dealing with these issues. And then to unwire or disentangle that when the culture is already as toxic as it is or as agnostic to ethics as it has become over decades, that's so much harder. And I think, uh, again, we saw that a bit in the financial industry after the financial crisis, where there was a lot of talk about the toxic culture of banks, et cetera, and the wrong incentives. And I think the tech industry is going through a similar uh, period now, actually. Awesome. Because, uh, you no, know, the whole discussion now, the focus is on what are they actually doing in those tech companies? Uh, how are people being treated? How do they deal with whistleblowers? You know, who is being promoted? Who makes the rules, etc.? When we had the financial crisis, there was also a lot of talk, and also already before, as I said, around the, like twenty years ago with the Enron, and then uh, uh, the, the 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 subsequent auditing or, or like auditor crisis. There was also a, a closer look at: is this a case of a bad? apple or a bad barrels, it, barrel? Is it always just one person that's like uh, making bad things or is it a really bad system? And I think now the tech industry is being confronted with that uh, uh, question. Uh, that's probably a bad, bad barrel. It has been built on the wrong foundations, like the whole move fast and break things, you know, has brought them to where they are today, but it's also responsible for where they are today in terms of ethics scandals, etc. And I think that discussion, bad barrel, bad apple, is it inherent in their corporate culture and their business model? Uh, or is it just, uh, you know, a case of uh, distinctive individuals that's being or should be led now with regard to the tech industry? So I've got one last question for you because okay. time is running out. I would like to know, are you a robot? Yeah, my name is Dorobot. <laughs> I am Brilliant. a deep fake Dorobot. I am. <laughs> you argue quite nicely for the side of the humans, though. So I appreciate the time that you've taken to sit down with me and talk about this. I also appreciate you being a community member in our Slack, and it is great to have your opinion, your voice in there, and for everyone else that is not in our Slack, I encourage you to join us because there are incredible conversations that are happening like this one. We can continue this conversation. If you have anything that you did not like or that you liked that we said in here, jump in Slack and reach out to us or just put it in a channel and we will have the conversation around it because these things need to happen. I think that's very clear. We need to be talking about this more in a way that is an open and transparent discussion. So that is all for today. Thank you again, Dorothea. I really appreciate it. And we will see you in Slack. Okay. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot. Cheers.